This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And what's up, people? We're here to talk about movies and all that jazz. Um, I, I do want to update you, though, on my haunted bathroom. Let's do it. Uh, real quick, real quick, because we do have a very, very exciting guest. And I oh, am I apologizing that we even have to spend a minute on this. But it's no, been a while since I've given a house update. <laughs> and um, just to recap... So my house is 4,500 square feet. It's six bedrooms, four bathrooms. Damn. I have decided that half of my house is haunted and I just have shut it off and I have not gone in there since I bought this place. It's just wow. haunted. Do you, and, wait, let me ask you real quick. Is it like, is it per room? Is it like a, a directly, like, is it a straight line? Like this it's per half clean is, line. Wow, clean line. wow, wow. Okay, got And it. here's why. The two bathrooms upstairs, I think... It's haunted by, how do I say this? Dead child. It's entirely possible that the previous owners used this house for orgies. So the one bathroom (laughs) has, it's the most disgusting bathroom in America I've ever seen. I cannot wait to rip it to shreds. It has a black corner jacuzzi and a black toilet and a counter that is knee height. Now I'm six foot tall, but it is knee high to me. Mm. which is only good for leaning on when you're boning. Okay, because you said this, and my mind immediately went to, like, beyond the Valley of the Dolls or something. People just, like, fucking in a tub. Um, That is, well, that is, because the other bathroom that's off the main bedroom that I uh don't sleep in, because as you know, I have put myself, as someone who was recently released from captivity, I've put myself in the smallest room in the house. The (sighs) bathroom that's off the main bedroom bathroom Mm -hmm. has a shower i can barely stand in but Mm -hmm. the tub could fit william taft (laughs) and it does not have jets there is no jacuzzi situation it is just like a fuck tub so the haunted aspect of that side of the house i think i will start to address but i just wanted to give people that house update um that it's haunted and people used to have orgies here for sure and um i'm disgusted by my purchase every day I, what are your thoughts on a black toilet? It's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life, Millie. Yes, there's this very popular restaurant in LA called Lil Dom's that has a black toilet. And I was always like- I hate that fucking toilet. No one can tell if it's clean. What if it's completely disgusting? That's why in a restaurant, especially, I'm like, come on, y'all. You know nobody's cleaning this. So yeah, I'm grossed out Yeah, in my own home. It's haunted. It's shut off. It will be addressed next year. But in the meantime, I'm living with orgy ghosts, so- well, that's the latest house update. Godspeed. Um, Thank you. I, you know, listen, our listeners are very, very invested in your house. So we're glad to have gotten any kind of update, even if it's kind of bad. Like it was kind of a bad yeah. update. 
It's oh, always going to be bad. It's always going to be bad. Well, right? like the listen. whole year I've had this house, it's bad. Well, it, like I keep telling you, I'm like your fucking positive friend. I'm like, it's going to get better. Everything's going to be great. Just hang in there. I mean, now I'm kind of thinking maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I don't want to be, but it's like, you know, you, I don't know. It's been a, been a couple years. So I appreciate your positivity, but mm-mm. So, you just found out you had an orgy ghost, so I don't know. Like Now, you know. the cool thing about this day, besides realizing that my house is haunted in the worst possible way, is that we have a very exciting guest for the show. We do. So our guest is a comedian, an actor who has recurred on shows like Better Call Saul, Twin Peaks, and Reservation Dogs. And our guest is a huge fan of film noir. It's Josh Fadum, everybody. Thank you. Hello, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, there's a hotel. I'm from Oklahoma, and I'm in Oklahoma. There's a hotel. I'm from Tulsa, but there's a hotel in Oklahoma City, a famous one called the Skirvin, and it's an old one. It's been restored, and it's reportedly haunted, and they'll even tell you about it when you stay there. But also, like, the basketball teams all go through there and stay at the Skirvin on the 13th floor. And apparently, there is a very gropy, molesty ghost and, no. and and many football, uh, I mean, basketball players attest to uh, someone was doing something to me uh, last night. And they're like, oh, that's, you know, that's Shirley the ghost or whatever her name is. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, and then there's a whole, they'll tell you the whole story about it. You can look it up. Skirvin. So anyway. Oh, I'm not looking it up. I'm going there. One yeah, of my go best to friends Skirvin lives in Tulsa. Hey, I'm so lonely. I need some <laughs> 13th floor. Please. <laughs> So, I'm like, my going. question is, why did you just basketball teams are, they're just, this is just like the place that they booked? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a lady, probably a, a, a real active, anxious lady. She died. She threw herself out of the, off the building, I think. It, we're probably 1941 or something, 1930 something. Basketball players have changed in physical cliche punchline mm. form. So maybe she's making some grand discoveries. You know what I'm saying? She She's reliving. She's having a, a renaissance of sexual liberation that was not available to her in her time yeah. during her life. Yeah, mm. she is condemned to a great time. I look, Shirley, <laughs> jobless. I, yeah. I hope to do the very same when Shirley I at the finally Skirvin. shake this mortal coil. Just Hopefully let me you can the hotel. do it in, at the Skirvin <laughs> with the basketball players instead of at this orgy house you're stuck at. Oh my God. I <laughs> I will be buried in the yard here, but I hope that I can fly into a different dimension once I'm yeah. dead. <laughs> Wherever you had a great experience, I think that's probably what happens. Oh, mm -hmm. that's lovely. That's oh my a, God, you guys are so positive. Yeah, you gotta stay positive when you're on a podcast because then people are driving <laughs> in their car, they're working in their garden, and then they, they listen to something dark and they're like... Why do I even bother finishing? Josh, yeah. if I got news for you, I know <laughs> my 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 call my calling card is making men cry. Yes. Well, I'm an emotional guy, so look, <laughs> if I cry, that's not going to be too unusual for either of us, I suppose. Yeah, we've already uh, put it out there that we're accepting Polaroids of men crying to put on, you know, stapled to the eaves of our bar. So you would get like a free shot if you're like a man who cries from our podcast. So we have a whole we have a whole system down. Cries now. on or just cries and then you happen to listen to it. Just cries while listening. Yes. Me and my I, me and my girlfriend. I have a girlfriend. We <laughs> are both very emotional people. We'll go to a bar and just chat and then we'll just 
we'll, it won't even be about a heavy discussion. We'll just be sitting there. Oh man, I know. Yeah, it's in that. It's not you. And I feel that way too. And, that. and we'll and we'll both kind of think no one sees us. No one's watching us. But then the reality is probably people see the couple in the corner like yeah, 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 yeah. And then moments later, <laughs> we're having a great time. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. They think you're having the weirdest breakup of all time. Yeah. They go, wow, that couple, wow, they really feel things. Wow. Well, we we just had an episode where we talked about wild bar stories, and it's nice to know, like, that you're the crier in the bar. Danielle is the opposite. She's the person that would come around and, like, get you guys to, like, make out, I think we figured out in that episode. She's a, she's a legend, a bar legend. So... I'm, I think I'm a little legend? in the middle. I'm not quite a crier, but I'm not a legend. So I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm monitoring the vibe. I think I don't know that actually role. I'm ready to define myself. I could be anything, you know, <laughs> why, why narrow it down? Why be just the crier? Yeah. When why you could have that? it all. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, you are a dream. You're so funny. I'm so glad you're with us today. Thanks. And I'm so glad to be here. I'm like, oh my God, I just realized they said, oh, it'll be 30 minutes. I'm like, Shh. We ain't gonna get to any good topics. We're just keep we're just keep talking. We're not gonna get to shit. <laughs> yeah. Thirty minutes and like, oh, it's already over. And it'll be like, yeah. oh man, we're done. This oh, is also the, the the weird thing about this podcast. We can make our own rules, man. Oh yeah. yeah. Well oh yeah. Also well, we make our I own suppose, rules. Yeah, let's make our own rules. Whatever, man. Chop it out. God, I mean, I don't want to keep you from crying in a bar with your girlfriend, but if you got the time Well, I'm in Tulsa, she's in Oklahoma City, so I, I won't make it oh. there tonight. So we got, oh, we got I can cry with cry. y'all. I can't cry with y'all. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's see let's see if this question makes us cry, because okay. um I'm excited to hear your answers for sure. Um so I try not question. to stress about it, by the way, and just like no. it's, it's easy. You can easy it's, it's easy. No stress. It's just yeah. what comes naturally. Millie did enough research for 17 people. Yes. Great. <laughs> so don't even, she will set us off on a path that we will not even realize until she starts talking. We'll be like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> Total, totally low stakes. Uh, so our question is from Elliot, who uses she, her pronouns. And Elliot says, I have loved all the themes so far. And after hearing your discussion about frailty, I started thinking about movies with characters who are bad or flawed, but you root for them anyway. I'm talking Walton Goggins' Boyd Crowder and Justified, Mad Mickelson's Hannibal, Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden and Fight Club. Which brings me to my theme suggestion. Who are the best of the worst? The best out of all the bad guys that you can't help but liking. I would be so curious to hear your respective answers and why you picked them. Elliot, you've set us mm. on a path. This is a good one. It's a rich question with ri rich with answers and discussion uh, possibilities. It is ripe with possibility, but I'm going to right away call foul on rooting for Tyler Durden. <laughs> right. He's not even a real character. Spoiler alert. Really. Yeah. But also, like, I didn't I never rooted for anyone in that movie. Yeah. I Can you really root for somebody with that many abs or something? I don't know. It just feels kind of like. I don't no, know. You know, He's not. you know, I don't like muscles. I yeah. can't root for anyone with that many muscles. Well, they're really dull at our number with Justified, because as you know, this is a pro Justified podcast. We've talked about this many times before. Oh, yeah. But he here's what I want to ask Josh. I'm going to throw this to Josh first, because as I as I mentioned, big fan of noir. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a couple things about some bad guys. Right. Um, what is your yeah. what is your take on this question? I know it's complicated. 
I, I, well, first of all, I want to, I, I, that makes, gets me thinking about Tyler Durden. And that's a movie that people, I feel like unanimously think hasn't aged well. I need to look at it again. But of course, I loved it in 1999. But maybe it's just such a time capsule of that year that Tyler Durden, if we can't even possibly fathom rooting for him now, but in 1999, 2000, pre 9-11, we're like, Oh my God, this jerk, we love him or something. who knows. <laughs> yeah. and, um, but I went and did a once over on some of the DVD shelves after the question. And the first one I pulled, the number one is Taxi Driver. Oh, yes. That's the most obvious one to me. He's Very not a nice. good guy. He's not a good guy, but I like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one I pulled, Charlie Varick with Walter yes. You want to do South by South by North by Northwest again? He says that after a sex scene. I think, is that like supposed to be a sex position? I'm not sure. Why don't we do <laughs> That's a really good Walter impression. <laughs> and then uh, Sorcerer. I think everyone's bad in that movie. A bad guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, We're about to talk about some Tangerine Dream in this episode. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> we can do a vocalized synth score. This is a strange one. I was like, you know what? I'm pulling that one. What do you think of this? City Lights. Oh, Very, yes. Charlie that's interesting, Chaplin. right? Okay. The tramp yeah. is actually kind of g- generally a bad guy. Mm, uh, that way he's kind of a scoundrel. Take. And mm. then he finds someone often in most Charlie Chaplin tramp movies where he thinks they're less fortunate than him. And then he'll do anything to help them. Right. And then that makes us cry. It's like, oh my then God. Then you're at the bar crying. He's the bottom of the barrel, <laughs> and he finds someone he thinks is below the bottom of the barrel. So he's going to get out of the barrel and let them get in the barrel. And he has no <laughs> barrel now. <laughs> and then this one here I pulled out Kiss Me Deadly. Oh, yeah. Another yeah, yeah, goodie. Yeah. So that was oh the one. And also, while we're at it, I think a TV show was mentioned Better Call Saul. Yes. Oh. I mean, Naturally, Everyone on but... Better Call Saul is good and bad and every, you know, and you uh, sometimes you're, I mean, that's, I can't think what modern prestige TV seems to be. They yeah. give you a good guy. Oh, he's bad. And they give you a bad guy. Oh my God, that bad guy's so bad, but he just did a good thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Better Call get... Saul is particularly skilled at that though, especially in the relationship between, um, you know, the brothers and the relationship, like they're all the romantic relationships. And like, I mean, there's so many ways that you're like, you're great here, but wow, you suck here. Yeah. And I Jimmy, love Kim, that. Jimmy, Kim, Howard. Um, oh, my uh, God. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chuck, you know. Uh, yeah, everyone. Chuck. Oh, I think God. everyone, my character, camera guy, I think everyone really roots for him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's not I a think people really bad in that dude's body. Well, yeah. I think people think his guy acts like he's bad, but I'm rooting for him to really, you know, make a great film. <laughs> well, like... Like, okay, I was, like, thinking about this question philosophically, maybe. Oh. What, what, what makes you guys root for a bad character? Is there something, like, is it is it, like, a, is it fashion? Is it charm? Is it, like, certain something, enough information mm. about a backstory? Like, what right. makes something, some a bad character, like, likable or something? Do you know no, what I mean? That's a good question. I don't even know that they have to be likable, right? Like, I think it's more that, like, maybe the bad guy gives you a more interesting story. Okay. Maybe it's, you know, I think it's just a matter of setting up stakes and a want. 
So you set up some sort of a want, whether the person's like, you know, or someone's trying something. I'm just making this up, by the way. I don't know. I don't know how to speak <laughs> with authority. But, you know, it's like you see the guy. He wants the, the, or the gal. And they want the thing. They want the thing so bad. Oh, my God. They're doing everything under the sun. They tried that. That didn't work. They tried that. Didn't work. They tried that. It almost worked. Didn't work. And then you're just like, damn. Oh, now they're even doing bad shit to get the one. I'm not even sure I feel comfortable with that. But I was on mm-hmm. board with them getting the one. Or maybe there's a reverse where they're like, this person's trying to get a thing. I don't even care. This person's trying to. And then before you know it, you start to care, you know, or this person starts out unethical. Right. This person's a scumbag. And then I kind of identify. I'm a scumbag, too. I kind of identify with the scumbag. Yeah. Let me see if this applies to that method of thinking, because the first two bad guys that I wanted to let Elliot know that I root for is Jaws from Jaws and the wolves (laughs) in the gray. I think I would root of all if there are any bad animals, they're good to me. I guess like grizzly <laughs> I piranha. I don't fucking care. They're, yeah, to I'm me, rooting for the piranhas. I'm rooting for the piranhas. I'm rooting right. for the for the fucking shark, and I'm rooting for the wolves. I don't know why those guys didn't do anything. In the bad. Final Destination movies, are you rooting for fate? All, always, <laughs> fate is gonna get you. We need yeah. to. If we're on, approaching fate. this philosophically. On, well, because fate has pa- to win. Part of like what those, you know, animals attack movies are about are largely about like humans entering this natural world and we're fucking it up for them. So, yes, of course, Jaws must eat everyone in this fucking beach town because we came there like we're, you know, so I'm just sort of like in those movies. That's why it's so easy to root for those characters. Yeah, because like, you know, man's hubris. When you uh, when you bring up, you know, things that aren't like that are like uh uh, devices or animals or even uh, a, uh, a an existential concept as a character to root for. One of the ones I wrote down just rattled off. Oh, what were some noir films I liked? Um, mm. uh, the the Mickey Rooney movie Quicksand. Would okay. you say Ooh. that's one where it just oh this guy's just getting screwed left and right, and everything he tries to do to to clean up the mess, it just makes it a bigger mess. Does yeah. that mean the bad guy's God? Oh, Fate, no, I haven't seen you know? this movie. So give me mm. a little bit more. It's it's um um it's Mickey Rooney, and I think he's gonna get a date with a hot gal. And he it's two one of two noir things I think where he maybe works at a mechanic's place. It's like Driver Crooked Road, but then also Quicksand. I think he works also at a car place, and I, I can't remember exactly what happened. I just remember. He does a thing, and then now he's in debt. He tries to get more money, and then that, and then now he loses his, uh, you know, his mom's whatever fancy thing, or is uh, yes. then now he does another thing. Now he's got no car. Now he's trying to just clean up. He's got no suit, you know. Now he's just yeah, trying. Right. He's trying to get the thing on the date. Maybe the date is like you're a loser, and oh shoot! Now I, if I could just win once, then uh, then she'll show her I'm not a loser. And you know, it's not that, but it's basically that. And then it yeah. just keeps getting worse and worse. Quicksand. He's oh. in quicksand. You know? He's in quicksand. That's the definition. The very definition. That feels very related to one of the movies we're going to talk about this episode. I just have to say. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. But uh, yeah, that. So in that way, you're like, well, it's not really him. He's not bad. It's just his circumstance, and you know, he can't help but like continue to fuck up in a in a way. You know what I mean? That's yeah. easy. That's easy to root for. I will say. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's easier to root for. And and in, in a real, like, if we're going again with that kind of philosophical sense of what is the villain, what's the bad guy, I kind of, I don't know, I guess I just feel like 
very often the bad guy has been scorned by the good guy. And if you flip the script, let's take, for example, Batman. Bill, Millie, you're not going to love this. <laughs> Bat, any Batman movie, you're like, you look at the Joker's life and he's the Mickey Rooney and Quicksand character. Yeah. And then here comes Batman with all his money and his fucking toys and shit. And he's like, I'm the best. I'm going to save everyone. And the Joker's <laughs> like, can I just get a fucking check? Like, what the yeah. shit, dude? Why do you have to, like, you can... Why are you fucking up all my shit? Like, he's got <laughs> needs. He's he's yeah. a little bit greedy and a little bit bad. But you know what I mean? Yeah. That uh, scene in the Jim Burton, Tim Burton Batman where when I was a kid and Jack Nicholson puts the glasses on, he goes, you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? Uh, that was always <laughs> the funniest joke to me. I was like, oh my God, I was 10 or nine when it came out. I was like, that joke is so funny. Because <laughs> I knew that, like, don't you never hit a man with glasses. And, you know, Batman hit the guy with glasses. Batman doesn't care. He Batman messed up. A guy with glasses? If there's one thing I've learned by age nine... <laughs> now having said that i will also say that hannibal lecter is on my list <laughs> and i don't know what that says about it's me. just because he's got that brit that air of refinement <laughs> that you fucking love you if it's he had he's a crafty. show on Britbox, you would be like i'd be all is. over that show but it's because he's crafty when he made that fucking angel now is every every hannibal lecter you feel this way about or like a tv hannibal lecter or or you know, Hopkins, like Red every... Dragon, you know, Brett Ratner, Hannibal Lecter, or Brian Cox, Hannibal Lecter, you know, what? what it's are... kind of every Hannibal. Every like Hannibal. Every Hannibal, but especially Anthony Hopkins, especially Brian Cox, and especially yeah. Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> so that's all three of them, real, or is there another one I don't know about? I, I think there's one more. <laughs> that guy don't count. Sorry, guy. I don't even remember. Sorry, think, guy, you don't I get mentioned. <laughs> primarily of Anthony Hopkins, because let me tell you how much it imprinted on me to see that when he took that police officer and like made angel wings out of his back skin and hung him up mm -hmm. he's an artist i'm a crafter at heart yeah i knit i crochet i appreciate the craft of how much he's like i will fuck you up if you get in my way that's true it's like the whole movie of silence of the lambs they're telling us okay he's gonna help you but don't get close don't let him kiss you don't let him touch you don't approach <laughs> the glass don't let him out of the glass whatever happens don't do it don't buy any of his tricks he's gonna get out of the class so just so you know viewers jody foster's gonna solve this crime and this guy's gonna stay inside the whole movie and then what happens third act oh my god they let the guy out and then you're kind of like Yes. What's he gonna do? Oh, let him out. Yeah. Oh, wow. We've been seeing Buffalo Bill do all this effed up stuff. Homie, he's got nothing on him. The master is out. Yeah, the, the master is the artist. And and to Millie, Millie, you might be able to to connect with me on this one, Josh. I hope you can. But okay. Okay. are we not rooting for the T one thousand in Terminator two? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. That's <laughs> that's complicated. And there. And you know what? Maybe that speaks to the brilliance of Terminator Two. Because when I was a kid, I went to see Terminator Two, expecting. I think I didn't know the plot, so I thought right. yeah, we all know the Terminator in Part One's bad. So I'm ready to. Ooh, I. But I love Arnold. He's the big star. And then here we go. Wait a second. That guy good. You know. And yeah. uh, and then you exactly. know they show him break a couple bones, steal the biker's clothes, and then. Um, that's a complicated one because it's, it's playing on our desire. Cause probably in part one, we want to see, I'll be back, kill everyone, you know? Yeah. And then he comes Absolutely. to part two and like, we, guess what? That guy who was bad that you were rooting for, we made him a good guy. 
He's the good guy now. That makes you say, well, I don't like him anymore. I don't want him to protect that kid. I want him to kill that kid. I mean, let's let's not be, let's not mince words. T-1000 is a cooler model. (laughs) So I kind of want to root for him just so I can see what he can do. Robert Patrick? Is he he T-1000? Yeah. So I, I just want to see what he can do. I want to see those scissor hands. I want to see his fucking spikes. Like, I want to see him keep going. You want to see him turn into people's stepmoms and yeah. like, have a hook, you know? Yeah, you yeah. want to see him kill Xander Berkeley um, with the milk <laughs> carton and the... Well, so but that's complicated, too, because that plays with the whole... I think audiences, they want to see an underdog. And when you see Terminator Schwarzenegger, he's now the underdog against scissor hands. So, mm-hmm. you know... Um, yeah. Robert Patrick scissor hands. Um, the underdog thing is really interesting because, so I was really thinking about my answer for this question, obviously. <laughs> and I, what I did was I took these like fucking note cards and I wrote like every movie that I can think of where the villain is somebody that I root for. Okay. And then I decided that they belong to one of two categories that and so now i've re- Damn, realized Millie. this about myself <laughs> so out of all of these villains they can be cater- categorized as such they're either couples on the run mm. or old ladies mm. oh well this is your wheelhouse that makes perfect so sense. basically i was like what are my favorite villains quote unquote bad people that i enjoy Barton Annie from Gun Crazy. That's a, you know, one Josh might know about, he might have seen, but also sure. like those like Badlands, like all those mm. movies where you're like, oh, Tomorrow here's terrible is people. another day. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, all the other, all the other couple ones that, uh, you know, Eddie Muller puts in his book. And they uh, live by night. Puts in the, they live by night. They dry, yeah. yeah, they live by night. Yeah. Um, uh, but, there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, all, so all those couples on the runs. I mean, there's like technically they're committing crimes. They're bad people, but I yeah. want them to win. Why do I want them to win? Because I believe in love or something. Because love, baby. But then the Beautiful. other side is old ladies. So yeah, Ma, I, lo- I wish Ma, I wish that Ma should have won. She should have won. I'm going to uh, circle back to Better Call Saul in this one. <laughs> old yeah. ladies, if you Please finish do. the series, no spoilers. Don't spoil, spoil it. whatever. Not gonna spoil, but old ladies play a big part of the whole series. By the end, you'll see. Yeah, uh, old but ladies. Not even it's what I'm watching ladies. this weekend. Yeah, it's not even old ladies. It's just like middle aged, like Jackie Brown. If you want to go in that direction, like I love. Oh, you mean Jackie aging Brown. women? Women aging who are quote, women. What, quote, what Hollywood is prime. deemed to be old, which is pretty much anybody above thirty five at this point. When I was whatever, younger yeah. and I saw Jackie Brown, I was like. Huh. I mean, Pam Greer, you know, she's like older. She's like, you know, she's older or whatever. Now I'm 42. I watch Jackie Brown and go, Pam still, Greer still got it. Still got it. Still got it. And now I <laughs> think we're actually ever. older. Maybe we might be older than Jackie Brown. Which I'm, puts that I'm Robert shit. Forster. I'm Robert Forster and Jackie Brown where she's like, you know, I put on, I'm not as good looking as I used to be. Oh, I'm sagging a little. Butt's bigger. And he's even better. <laughs> something about it he's talking yeah. about his own you know hair loss i love that yeah. movie but you want yeah. those that's exactly what it is it's like it's an underdog philosophy where you're just like Completely. okay you want these people to win even though they're doing bad things you know yeah you can re- that's relatable that's relate. maybe travis pickle he's lonely hey i'm lonely uh, maybe i'm gonna yeah. go uh you know uh stock a bank employee and then shoot shoot the bad shoot the the pimps maybe <laughs> i'm gonna do that you know i'm lonely <laughs> <laughs> going downtown no it's true that is it is very i think that is the to me the key of 
the way I answered the question or thought of this question, which is fantastic, Elliot. Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad to, I'm glad to that you were here to answer this question. And it was really like perfect for you because of the fact that, you know, I had known. We I'm a know tragic figure. You're a tragic figure. You cry in bars and you're a huge noir fan. And I feel like that is like a perfect, like that genre specifically horror too, which is why Jaws has entered the chat. It's this whole like taking, you know, these characters that are kind of bad and figuring out if they're likable in some kind of way. And that's a fascinating question to answer. So I'm glad that Elliot sent it and I'm glad you were here for it, Josh. It was great. Well, Josh, thanks again. We can't thank you enough. It's It was so fucking fun. You're a so blast. Thank, thank you. you. I'll so be back anytime you need me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ugh. Josh is so funny. Well, and like, honestly, like the whole conversation and the noir thing feels really apropos for our theme this week. It kind of does. I mean, a lot of people probably guessed what this would be, but why don't we just tell them what the theme is for this week? Uh, the theme this week is Rest in Peace King James Khan. <laughs> that is right. We finally, we had to do it because, all right, let's give them, I feel like maybe we can orient some folks that maybe haven't, are new to the podcast, right? This has been kind of an evolution that has been happening through the episodes, like as the episodes have been rolling out. It started with our episode that uh, we talked about the film Misery, right? which obviously is a movie that stars James Caan. Now, we talked about this in regards to one of the scenes in the movie where basically the Annie Wilkes character or the uh, Kathy Bates character is like throwing James Caan down the stairs of the basement and kind of just... Oh, uh, all over the house. All over the house. She's him around the room. She's picking him up out of the bed. Roughing him up. As we know... She does in that film. And personally, as we love in that film. So we just kind of like riffing on that scene and those scenes. And we were like, wouldn't it be fucking great to like start a a challenge, a physical challenge uh, where we attempted to deadlift James Caan in the, in the style of Annie Wilkes from misery. And, uh, we kind of set that goal for ourselves and then, you know, it's just the goal being that now that we were going to physically go and find and lift James Khan, but that we wanted to be able to. Yes. Like we approximated his weight and thought that's going to be like the goal. The goal is to at some point be able to pick up now, whether or not it's in the deadlift style, like gently lifting somebody a couple inches off the ground. If it was, you know, a clean and snatch or whatever the fuck they call it. Like when you just like throw somebody over your head or something like 
We didn't we didn't know. We just were like, let's deadlift Jimmy Khan, and that'll be a goal we work towards. And that just that simple joke. I, I took a little seriously. Uh, and, uh, you know, I kind of uh, joined a weightlifting club. And to be honest with you, I had been thinking about doing this forever, but it was just that Aries nature in me to be like, well, I'm going to see if I can actually try to do this. Right. Nice. And as of this recording, I have, I guess, again, not knowing how heavy James Conn actually was before he passed away. But anyway, long story short, He's kind of been an inside joke on the pod for a long time. And then he passed away recently, as we all know. And we got hundreds, multiple hundreds of tags, emails, DMs, talking about people saying that he and her, they had heard that he had passed away and they immediately thought of us. Yeah. And I'll say to me, he wasn't a joke. I think he's a true inspiration. For yeah. us to physically get our shit together. Yes. And I definitely appreciated him as an actor. Yes. And I just think it's 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 wild and wonderful that he was able to inspire us to um like take some action in our own lives. The the legacy of James Kahn will continue through us, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like it, he just seems to be this like now he'll be forever affiliated with the podcast, which is kind of amazing. But I, you know, I think as an actor, you know, we both have seen many of his films and he's obviously like one of the most famous, you know, actors to have ever done it. He was in so many, you know, amazing classic films. I mean, just to to give a little background about James Caan, the actor, um, and this is all stuff I actually didn't really know, to be honest. I mean, I found out a lot about him, which is that he's from the Bronx, Mm-hmm. That I did know. I actually did not know that. And I'm stupid to have not known that because then you look at him and be like, of course he's from the Bronx. Like, listen <laughs> to him. But he got into acting, you know, when he was at Hofstra University. And, you know, he was, when he first started out his career, he was doing like off Broadway stuff. He was doing some TV. He eventually got to, you know, some minor film roles in the 60s. Um, he's an Irma LaDuce, which I, totally forgot which i think is kind of amazing but like you know he's most well known for and of course how we referenced him in that episode was that he is you know playing the hot-headed sonny corleone from the godfather movies right absolutely and it's so funny because i was reading this whole (laughs) i was reading this whole article about how you know he was nominated for an oscar for the first godfather film and then about and then basically after being in the Godfather, like he was Jewish, but like all the Italians were like, "This is our guy." Like he is an honorary <laughs> Italian, which I think is fucking hilarious. <laughs> oh my god, it makes sense. It makes sense. He played that role to a goddamn T. Yeah, and let me just tell you right now, like, say what you will about maybe his politics, but he is like legitimately. He was one of the fucking most charismatic, entertaining actors ever. Like, there's like this whole section of his Wikipedia where they talk about how he rejected so many movies that were like, that went on to be like super fucking famous. Like, The French (laughs) Connection. He turned down The French Connection and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He turned down Blade Runner. And it's like, and they give sort of the, the reasons for why and they were all just like, eh, 
I didn't like this guy. <laughs> eh, this <laughs> one seems stupid. Eh, this one, you know, and I'm just like, gotta love a fucking dude that does shit like that, right? I, like, I also, like, that is a New Yorker through and fucking through. Hollywood did not change him in that way. It's like, eh, is enough. Like, ah, that's yeah. fucking dumb. I don't want to do it. <laughs> like, that is the end of a conversation in New York. Well, and like, to me, that is kind of remarkable in and of itself to have turned down. I mean, you got to go look at it. If you guys are online right now, go look it up because it's like he turned down like so many good movies. And then he's just like, fuck it. I didn't need it. Who cares? Eh, cares. You know what I'm like? I just, lo- I love that attitude. That's so legendary. But like, listen, the thing about him though, too, was that he had this entire, like, he was like a fucking Twitter celebrity towards the end of his life. Did yeah. you catch all that? <laughs> yeah. He, this is again, something that I just kind of appreciate about him as an actor and person is that he, he definitely lived many lives and was very active in many different ways for decades. Like, but he never, he never lost the kernel of like, this is who I am. But he also was just like, who else has had the longevity of that career? Who else stayed so present to be able to comment on modern films and think like he was doing shit. He was like active in the world. He, He wasn't shying away and being like, eh, Whatever, I'm famous, I'm old, bye. He was just like, no, guess what? I still have opinions. Here I, here they are. <laughs> like, he was super sharp. Like, up until, like, I was watching commentary for my movie, but and then just watching, like, interviews for other things that he had done. And he was, like, fucking hilarious and just, like, super charismatic and, you know, was effectively a guy in his, like, late 70s, you know, early 80s. And I'm just like, yo, this guy ain't missing a beat. Like, he's got this like worldliness to him, you know, which is obviously a big part of like, that informed a lot of the roles that he played, especially in our two movies. I mean, he's like, he's a he's like a classic tough guy in that noir kind of way in that way that come we talked about earlier with Josh. It's just that thing of like, he's just got this like, streetwise authenticity to him. Absolutely. There's something to be said about the fact that he would turn down certain movies, but do Mickey Blue Eyes because it like <laughs> made him laugh. Because he likes that he was poking fun at himself and the roles that he's played. Yeah. Oh, that dude. says something to me about that guy. That like that's fucking great and fun and funny. Yeah, I agree. And you know, his like I said, I, I was following a. Li- I wasn't following the Twitter, but everybody I knew was re- retweeting it, and he would put that end of tweet. Like, oh my god after everything and then the saddest one which was the one where they announced that he had passed away and oh. they put end of tweet i was like oh my god. god this is so emotional brutality absolute fatality well i have to say i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say we're geniuses but these two jimmy con movies are wow oh god they're so great. good this we is a great double feature ones. Yeah. This is a really good double feature. I really enjoyed and really enjoyed this one. Yeah, you're going first. I will go first um, because my film <laughs> was released in 1974. It uh, The screenplay is by James Toback. The movie was directed by Carol Weiss. Rice? Rice? Reese? Who knows? Uh, and my movie's name is The Gambler. I can't lose. 
I've got magic powers. I'm scorching. I'm hot as a pistol. <laughs> I love this movie. Uh, I will give you a one sentence in a moment, but you might know the director from he, I very, very famous, very well-known director uh, who did the French Lieutenant's Woman. That was the one that instantly stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did do a remake of this movie with Mark Wahlberg uh, in 2014 that I, I will not watch. I haven't and I will not. And it's probably fine, but I just, you know, why mess with perfection? Why mess with the best? Absolutely. So, I know that's out there. I know many of you will comment on it. I have not seen it and I will not see it. Um, Also, I have to say something, just a side note to that point. So the first time I ever heard of this movie, it was when I was programming this theme on TCM about addiction and recovery. And obviously this movie deals a lot with that kind of thing. And um, when it was put into the schedule initially... It was mistaken for Kenny Rogers, the gambler. Oh, shit. So there's this like, there was this entire like point of time where like, we were like, oh yeah, this movie about Kenny, like we're like, oh, this like really important, you know, night of films featuring, you know, like all of this like gambling and all this stuff. And then Kenny Rogers, the gambler came up. I'm like, wait a minute. That's not right. It's not that movie. It's a different movie. It doesn't have James Caan in it. And they were like, Oh, yeah, I guess we fucked that up. We got to change it. So anyway. Was it on TV? No. (laughs) Right before, right before I found, I found the error. Oh, God. Well, that's, and that's why, you know, it pays to sometimes put the year of the film (laughs) in your correspondence because that, that, that will happen even when I was looking up like, hey, I'm going to watch The Gambler tonight. Where should I stream it? And the Kenny Rogers one comes up first all the time. Look, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. I fold them when it comes to this ain't the movie I want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this movie is great. And it led me to kind of look up a f- an interesting fact. Um, so gambling was not considered an addiction until the late 1980s, um, wow. which makes sense. And once you see this film and you're kind of watching, because um, this is a really... It's an interesting movie that that Gene Siskel, when he was writing for the the Chicago Tribune, he he kind of framed this movie as a character study, and he said that the story doesn't hang on the ending, which I completely agree with. But also, it is a very tense movie to watch because you're watching someone just make increasingly bad decisions, mm-hmm. and you know that you can't stop. That's not going to stop. So my one sentence synopsis is a man who kind of never learns gambles to the point of excessive danger. Mm. And I feel like that could, that's a good one sentence without giving away too much. Um, So our essential cast, and this is truly like a murderer's row of a cast. You've got James Caan playing Axel Freed, Paul, Paul Sorvino, young Paul Sorvino playing a bookmaker named hips with hot, I just cannot get over. There's one point where he is at Axel's apartment looking for money, obviously, that is owed to him. And he's on the phone with someone and he's yelling in Italian and it is so awesome. And then he says, you dirty, low down, stool pigeon, motherfucking scumbag, degenerate dog, die. And he hangs up. And I'm like, is that not how we want to end every phone call now? (laughs) No. It was 
fucking incredible. I love, 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 love him in this role. Um, and he's playing this guy who, like, he really likes Axel as a person, but he's like, you also owe me a tremendous amount of money. I can't I just ignore that. Can't just ignore that. Um, Lauren Hutton plays Axel's girlfriend, Billy. We've got, I mean, again, Burt Young plays Carmine. He's in, only in a couple of roles, but, like, just amazing to see Burt Young being young. Big <laughs> 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 um, Tayback. Big Tayback makes an appearance. M. Oh, yeah. Emmett Walsh makes an appearance. It is just like rife with these incredibly cool actors. And so what I love about this story, the general synopsis of this, is that basically you come in on this story at a moment where Axel is just gambling his heart out and you think it's nighttime and he's like in vegas because he is like going from table to table he is just in and when he kind of picks his head up and comes out of it he owes forty four thousand dollars to hips and everyone seems to know that axel is in trouble and he owes forty four thousand dollars in 1974 dollars, which I looked up the inflation, is $265,000 in modern currency. I was going to say, like, when when they said the number in the film for the first time, I was like, that could literally, like, buy a house in that era, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, completely. That could buy a house in this era. That could be a down payment on a lot of shit. Like, that's still a lot of money for now. Yeah, yeah. But it was a fucking king's ransom back then. A quarter of a million dollars, essentially. Yeah. So... He's, what's weird about this scene and what I love about entering the movie this way is that he plays it so cool. Like He is not worried at all that he owes this money. And Hips doesn't seem to be worried either, even though they're kind of laughing. And he's like, actually, it's a lot of money, dude. Like, are you going to be able to pay this back? But Axel is so chill. And the way you get into learning about how he is, who he is, is he leaves this club. You realize it's fucking morning. And he goes to work as an English professor at a college. And one, again, beautiful peek into who this character is, is on the way to work, he stops to bet on a pickup basketball game that he sees some kids playing as he's driving to to work. He's like, hey, I'll get in on that. I'll bet you 20 bucks. He's like, we don't have $20. (laughs) But he's betting against children's games. Like he cannot stop himself. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to work where he's like an English professor who talks about fucking Dostoevsky and shit. Mm-hmm. And so he's a really complicated, weird character because he has like what many would deem to be a great career, a good job. He seems to like it and be good at it. Um, but this is a movie that I think is one of the early indicators about gambling being an actual addiction because he mm-hmm. cannot stop the trajectory and the momentum of this movie is he cannot stop himself. Yeah. And then you kind of like, I also love that that first scene of him teaching. We'll see like another one, but that first scene of him teaching is really interesting because he's talking to this student named Spencer who will come back, will come back in the movie. But he's talking about all this stuff about how like Dostoevsky said like two and two could be five and you have to believe in will and you have to believe in, in, power the power of fate and all this shit and spencer's like um i believe in what i see and i think that in that moment we're looking at a couple of things that were really interesting to me about that that scene um you're looking at someone like axel who needs a reason like he needs to believe 
that anything is possible, anything can happen, will is important, because that's how he lives his life, fast and loose. And then you look at someone like Spencer, who's like, I'm a black kid in college, I play basketball, I have to be rooted in the reality of what this world is. Mm -hmm. So again, like a very cool cinematic way to translate who these characters are without talking about it. I thought that was just a beautiful, beautiful scene. Um, Then you also learn that Axel's about a little bit about Axel's family. So his mom is a doctor. His granddad owns a chain of furniture stores and He's kind of well-liked in his family. Like, everyone kind of knows that he's got this issue, but he's really charming with his family. It's kind of strange. And his mom, being a doctor, like, he immediately tries to borrow $10,000 from her to, like, pay back this loan shark. Then he goes to another loan shark to borrow money. And that's where we meet Burt Young, because he goes to this other loan shark and Burt Young is like, yeah, I'll take you to him, but let me make a stop on the way. And it's one of the weirdest scenes in the movie where, you know, they're, again, kind of talking. And again, you're getting this real look. And I think this is why I agree with Gene Siskel, who said it was a character study. Um, they're in this car just driving. And, you know, Burt Young's character, Carmine, is talking about how he wishes he went to college. And, you know, he's got a nephew that went to college and he wishes he did the same thing. And Axel's like, yeah, but look at your life. It's the middle of the afternoon. You got no plans. You're on the open road. And like this little smile comes across Carmine's face and he's like, yeah, I don't have it so bad. So you can kind of see the charm of Axel and the way that he talks about his own life and how he makes other people feel about being a little bit, a little bit loose, yeah. <laughs> a little bit culturally loose. Yeah. But they he, he goes to his, like, they, they go to this place where Carmine's like, I just got to make a quick stop. And he basically stops at the apartment of someone who owes him money and just fucks shit up. Yeah. And again, a beautiful, beautiful storytelling device to showcase this is what's going to happen to Axel if he ends up borrowing money from this guy that he can't pay back. Yeah. Um, so I just love that scene because you're showing you're showing and not telling like right. what this world is that he lives in. Mm-hmm. And I just love that. Yeah. There's something to be said too. I don't know what you thought about this because it's so interesting to know, like when it gets revealed that he basically grew up wealthy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there, you know, there's a obviously a lot of movies about gambling and gambling addiction. I mean, I think about stuff like California Split or like, you know, I don't know, uh, Uncut Gems, maybe. Like, that's like mm-hmm. one of the movies that came to mind when I saw this, obviously. But I don't know. It seems to me that th- like the idea that he grew up with money and that kid he could be bailed out potentially, yeah. you know, by his family is an interesting that's an interesting part of the story. And I don't know if it makes me, I think it makes me feel less sorry for him in a way. Uh, and I know we just talked about, you know, complicated characters and, and our uh, sense of empathy towards them. But, um, but it is interesting because at, you're at the, you're right at the same time. He's so nice to his family. Right. But he Absolutely. is like a, a, a rich kid who now has a, a, a gambling problem. And you're just like, huh, it's it's pretty fascinating, and I think yeah. it's it's really it comes to light most for me in that scene at his grandfather's 80th birthday, because he gives this kind of glowing toast to his grandfather, and but he also basically says 
that the way he lives, like this balls to the wall, try anything lifestyle is because he's like trying to emulate his grandfather who came over here Mm -hmm. after the war and like built this huge business. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's kind of a a weird excuse and a fucked up way to kind of revere someone. They're like, you lived your life so loosey goosey that I want to do the same thing. And not really recognizing that the reason his grandfather did that is because he was escaping hell and poverty and didn't want to take the chance that that would be the rest of his life. And so he's got this weird, privileged, kind of voyeuristic, weird look at his own life by very complicatingly, like, using his family's story as a way to justify his own behavior, yeah. And I think that's ultimately what makes the the scenes when he has to go into this like underworld mm-hmm. to get money, like when he's with Carmine, you know, he's like, God, I wish I'd gone to college. And he's just like, why? Like your life rules. And I'm like, kind of spoken like a true rich dude, but you know what? Exactly. Like maybe that's just my own opinion about it, but you know. No, it is. Cause he's, he's really obtuse about, and again, you can see him trying to live in a very hippie-ish kind of way, but he just, his temper doesn't really allow that. His privilege doesn't really allow that. And his problem doesn't really allow that. Yeah. And so, you know, there's this whole scene where he, after go, it's it's almost like, it looks like he's kind of cosplaying when he goes to these underworld characters. Cause then he goes to his mom who just gives him $44,000 Yep. And you're like, wait, that was a possibility this whole time? I mean, she's pissed about it. Yeah. She is truly pissed about it. But she does it. She gives it to him. And I feel like it's one thing to be so careless with yourself, but it's another thing entirely to be careless with so many other people while also professing that you love them. Did Was it just me or did his mom sort of look like Scott Thompson's character from the Kids in the Hall when he plays uh, the mom, the mom character. Oh my god! <laughs> she's married to is her name Barb? She's married to the Bruce McCullough, <laughs> the, so, the salty ham, the salty ham, yeah, the salty ham for sure. You didn't like it? No, I didn't like the ham, dear. It was a little bit salty, thanks. <laughs> well, you certainly wolfed enough of it down. <laughs> I was like, damn, that's a dead ringer for Scott Thompson's mom character. Might have been the model. Might have been the model. Might have been. <laughs> that is so fucking funny. Yes, absolutely. She does. <laughs> oh, God. And I love her character because she's like, I'm a doctor. I'm smart. Like, I didn't rest on my fucking family money to get by in this fucking world. And I can't mm. believe that you do. Like, she's just is so pissed at him, but also doesn't want him to die. Yeah. And she even asked him, she's like, what do they do to you if you don't pay back? And he's like, I don't know. I guess they'll kill me. And you're like, that is, again, like the most privileged white kid thing of all time to be like, yeah. I don't know, maybe I'll just be killed. And she's like, you can't just tell your mother you might be killed for something and expect her to not help you. But yeah. that's where he's super fucking manipulative because he yeah. knows that. He knows mm. that. Um, but then he gets the money and on the way home from taking Billy, his girlfriend, uh, to see his grandpa, he gambles all the money away that his mom just gave him. He bets it on these fucking college football games. Mm. And there's something, this is kind of the part of the movie where I'm like, there's something really interesting about a man who's convinced that he can't lose when we he is right in the middle of losing it all. 
He's losing like money, friends, his girlfriend, his family. Like he is in the middle of losing everything. And it's just like, nope, I'm going to let it ride. Well, and then that is the thing I think that makes these movies so excruciating is because you're just like, you have been pretty much losing ever since the minute one of the film. Yes. Like, but you still have this like unflappable confidence. And then like at some certain point, he later, I think, talks about how without without that it, like that's the juice that's like how yeah. that that's his rush is feeling like he's gonna win and in this weird way it's just so strange just from my own personal like i am so the opposite i am not confident yeah. about anything i can't even imagine I'm incredibly risk averse <laughs> i know i'm so risk averse that i i just was so fascinated by that character just being like I can't lose. And I'm going to continue to have this faith that I'm going to win. Yes. And then what's weird is like, it works out sometimes. Yeah. But for the most part, it doesn't because the whole movie you're watching him rob Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're like, even when you win, you're still not ahead. You still owe a ton of money to people. And so he goes to Las Vegas after he's bet on all these football games. He's like, Billy, let's go to Vegas. Again, the wealth of that. Yeah. That he can just hop on a plane and go to Vegas. Um, and he he thinks he's winning because he checks in at halftime and the games are all going his way. So he gambles even more and he wins some money at the tables. But then by the time he gets home, he realizes, like, I lost all the fucking basketball games. Yeah. And Billy's had it. She leaves. She's like, I cannot wake up with these fucking people shouting in my apartment. Like, Mm-mm. I cannot live like this. And... So he, she leaves and it's like, okay, so you have enough money. You've won enough money in Vegas to pay back this bookie that you used for these college football games, but you still owe hips $44,000. Yep. So he is still fucked at every turn. And that again is what makes this movie so interesting to me is that he can never get ahead because he believes in the wrong thing. He believes in himself more than he does the reality of life. He believes right. in will more than he does reality. Right. And it's like so frustrating to watch and all hell does break loose because he does have to pay these bookies back. Like Hips yep. is like, I will get my fucking money and I don't want to ruin it. But something really fucked happens uh, where he brings one of his students into um, this world and involves them in something um, but the end of the movie, I wish I could talk about it because it's so fascinating that like, Agreed. like you realize that he, he is such a, he's more than a financial gambler that he will gamble with his life. Like yeah. he gets excitement from any kind of adrenaline. He gets an adrenaline rush and an excitement from any kind of gamble. Like, will yeah. I live? Will I die? Will I lose? Will I win? Will I make yeah. it? Will I not make like, anything? Whether it, you can tell he's the kind of person that when he orders breakfast at a diner is probably like, bring me, bring me what you got. Yeah. <laughs> and like, we'll be, he'll, he'll make a bet on that. Like, he's just really fascinating. And the end of this movie kind of, to me, exemplifies all the ways that you don't have a solid ending in terms of like everything was fixed or everything got much worse it leaves you in a place where you're like this character like you're just thinking about the character like this character is going to continue like this yeah until he's murdered yeah he's just like got no i mean he just doesn't have 
good sense for himself. He's no, he's just too obsessed with the rush of danger. And um, it's crazy. It, it does remind me a lot of, of uncut gems in that way yeah. where you're just like, okay, dude, like that's it. Like, there's no way you can sustain this. This is too, too crazy. But um, th- this movie has, I have to say, I don't know what this character is called. Maybe there is somebody who's come up with something, but for me, it's this—it's this character that that happens in some of these like crime movies, and I just always think it's a scumbag in a robe. Like who the scumbag in a robe is? He goes to this—you um, know—I don't know. He's like a pimp <laughs> slash uh, drug dealer slash money guy. I think the actor who plays him is this guy London Lee, and there's this scene where he walks in, and you know, it's the guy is like on the couch, like doing drugs with his like beautiful women and his fucking weird dude that hangs out, and and he says this line. He's like, "What's the matter? You don't snort no more? Not even to be sociable? Like he's got that whole like." attitude like you ain't doing cocaine no more like not oh even to God. be friendly like <laughs> and, and he just says and he just is like that whole scene i swear to god like if i knew how to edit i would do a supercut of that <laughs> character that like scumbag in a rogue character in like all these movies but yeah i uh it's this is i totally think it's a character study too i mean it's so uh deeply fascinating to watch the trajectory of of this character and like yeah you know, and I gotta say, James Gone wearing some tight, tight clothes, tight and like a, a professor with a deep V buttoned, <laughs> like unbuttoned shirt. Seventies were God. fucking wild. He shows up like scruffy with a deep V and a full <laughs> chest hair. This is not like like oh he's making it work because it looks like you know he's wearing like a no. This is like full chest hair out to the point where his students are like, you look fucking rough, dude. Okay. He, I swear to God, if you counted, he had four buttons unbuttoned on one of his shirts. Completely. But then when he went to class, he just put one on. So just he was one. still three buttons down in Absolutely. class. In the middle of class. No jacket, no blazer. Like there's no excuse, nothing covering that up. <laughs> Which again, you're like, okay, so you're smart and you clearly went to good schools and you're clearly very intelligent, but you don't give a shit about this job. If modified professors came in with three buttons down, I'd be like, this guy. I would pack up. <laughs> I would pack up and take my books and be like, I'm sorry, I need to drop this class. I don't know what's going to happen, but it does not feel good. <laughs> he sleeps with students. No question. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. shit. Oh, this was a great film. I loved, loved, loved it. I did too. I'm so glad you picked it. I mean, really good 70s James Con classic all right so my movie for the theme r.i.p king james Kahn is a movie from 1981 it was written and directed by michael mann it is called thief i wear 150 dollars slacks i wear silk shirts i wear 800 dollars suits i wear a gold watch i wear a perfect d flawless three carat ring i'm a thief i know that Danielle, I know that you're not like a super big fan of heist movies. So I should have apologized in advance when I picked this movie because I'm like, oh, God, she's going to hate me for picking a heist movie. But No, I, I love a heist movie that doesn't drag. Yeah. True. <laughs> I hate that shit, too. <laughs> there are a lot of draggy heist movies. A lot. Yeah. And a lot that are just like convoluted for the sake of being convoluted. 
Yeah. True, true, true. But I got to tell you, this is maybe one of my favorites. I think a lot of it is because of Michael Mann. Yeah. I mean, if uh, some of you don't know who Michael Mann is by name, I would say that he is one of the most influential people to the style and the sound of the 1980s, if that makes sense. Mm. Absolutely. And this is and this is primarily from this film, I would say, but also he was the executive producer of a little TV show called Miami Vice. <laughs> we brought this up in the intro with Josh, but like he also directed the Brian Cox version of Manhunter, which of course is like uh, based off the Red Dragon books. Hannibal Lecter. He also directed. This is not in the eighties, but you know he directed the film heat which every boyfriend you've ever had has probably talked about at one point or another so michael mann is very is very much like um i think he's like a filmmaker's filmmaker or something like he's yeah this movie really thief really i think set the table for a lot of the style of what 80s crime like tv and film Mm mm-hmm would be right absolutely i'll put it to you this way okay if you have ever seen a guy in a hawaiian shirt or a a satin baseball jacket pull a gun in an abandoned warehouse while some synthesizer is playing in the background you can thank (laughs) this movie for that speaking of the score okay so michael mann used the band tangerine dream for the score to thief which if you remember on our miracle mile episode The same band did the score for that film, right? And I would say, like Miracle Mile, the music in this movie really sets a tone. And not just overall, but literally scene by scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty great. So, Thief takes place in the great city of Chicago, where Michael Mann is from. And Chicago is like almost a character in and of itself in this film, I would say. If you watch Michael Mann talk about Thief, he talks about it. He talks about how he was influenced by growing up in Chicago and its history of like organized crime, you know, the fact that it was the, the home of Al Capone. I mean, some of the mob guys in Thief were based on like real life Chicago mob guys. And James Kahn's character was based off the life of like real thieves that he knew that Michael Mann knew. Uh, And one of them actually plays the head cop in the film. He was actually a safe cracker um, and was a part of uh, Frank, like part of the character of Frank. A lot of that came from him. And, you know, Michael Mann too, he sort of, he had done all these prior projects like the Jericho mile And a lot of what he did for those prior projects was that he was interviewing people who had gone to prison and he was at Folsom Prison, you know, talking to inmates there. And all of that also went into forming the character Frank, who's obviously played by James Caan. And it's just all really interesting stuff to me. And um, also, Michael Mann, (laughs) if you watch his interviews, he's a big old nerd and I fucking love it. I'm like, this guy is like a King film nerd. And I just have to say, I kind of enjoy watching him. Um, he kind of looks like, uh, 
if uh, David Cronenberg was from Chicago or something. I don't know. He's just <laughs> kind of looks like that. Um, anyway, so a one sentence synopsis of Thief. A professional diamond thief and safecracker looking to lead the life of crime opts for one last job for a group of savage mob men. Absolutely. So, Thief, okay? The lead character, played by Jimmy Kahn, his name is Frank. By night, he is a professional jewelry robber. Um, he serves some time in prison. And he's really fucking good at cracking safes. Part of what I love about this movie is that it really dials into that. The art of safe cracking, the yeah. tools that you use when you crack safes, the methods at which you employ to break into banks and other places. And it's it's really fascinating to me. And a lot of the tools that he had to have made. Yes. They're, like... It's interesting because I, I was when I was watching Jimmy Kahn being interviewed about Thief, he was talking about how he was actually using tools. Like the scene, the the scene at the very beginning when he's cracking that safe for the first time and he's using that like weird magnetic drill. Mm-hmm. He was actually using that drill. Like the, he they were teaching him how to fucking do the specific drill into the lock hole, and there's like a lot of like sciencey stuff that he had to figure out and then apparently he like used that like ball peen hammer to like do the second lock i mean he was like really doing it but it's like all this really specific equipment and you know as you find out like as the movie progresses it's like all of this equipment that he's literally getting from like the criminal underground which is another part of this movie that i really love is like the dependence on all these people to help him do his jobs right like yeah one of my favorite characters in the movie is that old welder guy that he goes yeah. to visit. He's so funny. He's like, look at this fucking guy in a white lab coat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's so great. And he's just like an old guy running. You know, it's all of this stuff where like all these old guys are running businesses, but then they do a little shady shit on the side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's just like coming in there, asking him to build him this like fucking super high power drill, you know, to do this really big job. And that to me is very, very fascinating. I, that's a part of the movie that I really love. But so, you know, by night, he's a jewel thief. During the day, he owns a used car lot and a bar. Okay. And here's the thing Frank is getting older. He wants family, he wants a wife, he wants another wife. He just left his other wife, but he wants a. A, a woman who works at the diner that he goes to, her name is Jessie, played by Tuesday Weld, who is, like, such a great actress. Um, she was in this amazing movie that I love called Pretty Poison with Anthony Perkins, and I will always talk about how much I love that movie anytime I'm allowed. But um, she plays, like, this woman. It's like a cashier in a diner. And, you know, he's been trying to date her for a while, but, you know, he really wants to, like, get out of the business, right? Yeah. And he comes and visits this older guy that he served time with, but basically was his, like, mentor. Um, And he's played by the great Willie Nelson. His character's name is Okla, which I don't know if that means he's from Oklahoma. Maybe maybe. Yeah, I think at some point he talked about, like, where he was from or 
that he was like did some time in Oklahoma or something like that. Yeah, Oklahoma coming up a lot on this episode. <laughs> Never thought that would happen. But Willie's like Willie's character is basically like a mentor and kind of a father figure to Frank, and he's still in prison. He's sick. He doesn't want to die in prison. And, you know, he's trying to tell Frank, like, hey, I'm going to I got to try to get out of here. And I think that that's part of like what informs Frank to be like, OK, it ain't I don't want to keep doing this shit. I want to go straight. Like, yeah, no. I don't want to be this old and in, in jail like like my my mentor and my hero. So it's yeah. time to pull the greatest robbery of all man. <laughs> one last job <laughs> you know how it is that one last job uh, we might have talked about it before but man it's just always that one last job and it's always a you know it's always complicated and that's basically what it is it's like the one last job to end one last jobs okay now he at the beginning of the film he's you know pulling off a, a diamond heist okay so the way that it goes is that he gives the 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 stones to a guy I guess that guy's the plug or whatever. And then he's supposed to get his money for doing the job. The guy that's supposed to pay him suddenly ends up dead, as they always do, falling out of a fucking window, just like mob guys love it. And uh, he, now Frank is like, fuck, I need to get paid. So who do I got to go to? So again, he goes to like another shady Chicago business guy with mob ties and is like, you got to give me my money. So in the in the course of this happening, he meets this guy named leo and leo is played by robert prosky and i have to say he might be my favorite character in the movie <laughs> he is a real motherfucker and like mob boss type right oh he's so like he's so slimy where he, like you can see him being nice just because he's gonna come back and ask you for something yeah i mean we just talked at length about bad people that we love in as characters in films and television i mean robert prosky is incredible in this film he's just such yeah. like he plays this character so well and you know he's scary as shit like i mean he's scary up front but then later as the movie rolls out he is terrifying mm -hmm. right so leo was basically like listen I, you gotta come join my shit, right? Because we got this job. We like everything is taken care of for you. Like you're an independent contractor. You gotta do all your own stuff. But if you work with me, it's all set up for you. Cause I have this entire infrastructure that's gonna help us with like, you need a fake license. You need a baby. You need, you know, some, some tools. You need anything. We can supply it for you because of course he's in the fucking mob and that's what they do. Right. And, Frank is like, nah, I shouldn't do this because it's like, I don't want, I'd work for myself and my method is good. And I don't, you know, I just do the job and then I get out, I get paid and I don't have any ties. I don't owe anybody anything. Right. But it just becomes too enticing for him. And so he, he eventually agrees to work this job for Leo. And it's basically like this really complicated diamond heist with this safe. That's like, it's like a vault that pretty much requires all kinds of special equipment, as we mentioned, but also it requires like all these levels of planning. And like, he's got this little crew, including his um, kind of wires guy, his comms guy. His name is Barry, and he's played by Jim Belushi. Who took a break from making sure John Belushi's wang was edited out of 
<laughs> all former movies. Isn't he now like a real big cannabis guy or something? I have no what? idea. Oh, I swear God, I, think... I can't keep up. I can't keep up. Yeah. According to Jim is now pushing fucking legal weed. I, I believe. I can't. I don't know. Um, But... I gotta tell you, he looks fucking cool in this movie. He's like <laughs> he does. He's just kind of like um, a, a, a kind of stocky dude in like a Hawaiian shirt and like sometimes a satin baseball jacket and like <laughs> he's just like his dude. His like the guy that helps him turn off all the alarms and bug all the phone lines. I mean, it's kind of but he's got this kind of crew to help him out with his jobs. And so I don't know. He's just kind of it's this thing where you're like. He's you. You can tell like he's like the stakes are getting raised for him with taking this job from the mob, and he's just sort of like, but he wants out, and he he feel he figures like if I can get this one last payday, I can like marry Jesse, I can adopt a child with her, I can buy a house, I can just do all the things that he wants because when he was in prison, okay, Frank. There's this whole scene of him and Jesse in the diner, and he's kind of convincing Jesse to, like, date him, essentially. And it's a very classic scene. It's the one where he complains that the cream on the table is disgusting, Mm -hmm. uh, which has happened to me before. I don't know if you've ever been. First of all, table cream is gross. And don't give me no table cream. I don't don't even want those little fucking cups that they come in like those plastic cups with the lid you peel back. I'm like, these have been sitting here all day in the sun. I don't want them. Absolutely not. I'll tell you a story. I went to a diner. There was like, there's a 24 hour diner here in Atlanta. Very famous. And um, this was back in the days when you could smoke indoors. And again, the South was the last people to make that illegal. (laughs) They love their cigarettes down here. So I remember like drinking coffee with my friend and then pulling the table cream out and then it was one of those things that had the lids that were like flipped open and i remember like right as i was um pouring it into my cup the lid popped open and there was a cigarette butt in the Ugh, cream and God. my as my friend is about to sip her coffee that she had just poured and i was like i screamed like no uh-uh. roadie yeah so i i love this fucking scene i think it's like like he, it's on the heels of him showing up two hours late to their date because he's trying to set up this, like consider whether or not he'll take this job and talking to Leo and, you know, to his credit, it's kind of hilarious the way he shows up to the date and she's like, fuck you. You're two hours late. I'm not coming. And he's like trying to shove her into the car and like to the, to the movie's credit, like a lot of people tried to stop him. Yeah. (laughs) Like they were like, what the fuck are you doing? And he's like, uh, course correct. Let me put her in and then I'll get in next to her. Um, it was just very, very funny to see that, again, that kind of uh, passion of like, no, I want you to date me. And then he spends this diner scene trying to convince her that he's not a piece of shit. Yeah. And they're talking about their lives. And there's just this one part where he's she he tells her that he was in Joliet and he says, um, you know, there's was this moment where these guys were going to do hydrotherapy on me. And it was essentially like sexual assault in the showers. And in order to avoid it, he like had to plan a f- to fight and mm-hmm. he didn't win. And he says, just again, like this Michael Mann way of kind of letting you know who this character is and what his background is. He just says, um, 
they they jumped all over me and did a bunch of things. And then I was in the hospital for six months. Yeah. And you're like, wow. Like he he kind of also like survived by he said he survived by not caring about himself. Yeah. Like he had to just pretend he didn't care about himself. And I don't know. It's just a very, very it's an iconic scene for a reason. And it's really an interesting way um, to see him opening up and being vulnerable to this woman that he wants to convince to be with him. Yeah. It is kind of cool. Yeah, and like part of I think like what his mission is with her is that he doesn't want to lie to her about what he does. And, you know, as it's revealed, you know, Jesse has her own issues. I mean, she Mm -hmm. was previously with a drug dealer. And so that's like the one thing I think is the kind of parallel between your movie and my movie, too, is that the the girlfriend character having her own sort of experience with this like crime with this underworld. And it makes them kind of like cautious about entering into relationships with these guys, with both guys, these James Bond characters. But I do think that it made me want, it made me think that that is how date should be. Like it should just be one marathon date where you're like, here's all my shit. Yes or no. (laughs) Cut to the fucking point. I agree. I'm like, let's just get it all out at once. Here's my vision board I have in my wallet. That I made in prison. My portable vision board. <laughs> this like collage that he's created with like the cutout, you know, the cutouts. And he takes it out. And it's like, this is what I want. Here's who I think you could be. Here's Willie Nelson in the corner. Like, it's that thing where he like, he sees like himself being a different type of person. Like, he's Absolutely. like, listen, I had a bad experience in prison. I had to basically dissociate every moment. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm doing this right now because I was hoping to just get set up, you know, with with the stuff that I need to leave. And that's why I'm taking this job. Um, and I would really like it if you wanted to, you know, be with me. And she's like, yes. And they, you know, enter into a relationship. And so then this part of the movie is where... You just really, man, I just love, man, I love criminals are just talking that junk. Like all this stuff, like, I mean, like, listen, you know, uh, we have accused uh, men of being like annoying and making like their stuff, like all their guy stuff is can get, it's very eye rolly. But I got to tell you, like this shit really like, like I am fueled by watching old mob guys talk details about how to fucking rob banks like i'm just like the exception to the rule i don't know i'm like maybe i don't know like all these guys in polyester slacks fucking like looking at plans you know (laughs) talking about like alarm systems and shit i'm like sorry I, i i i don't know if that means i'm not a feminist but that's what i like so uh basically what happens from this point is that uh, they they stage the crime? I won't. I don't want to give away the movie necessarily, but um, essentially, what happens is is that the heist is executed. Um, there's a scene, not to be again, not to be like a, a total film nerd, but the camera in the elevator shaft. Yeah. When they're trying to bust through the ceiling and like all of the shits coming down on top. I mean, I was like, that's fucking genius. Love that Beautiful. scene. And it's just a lot of like cutting wires, uh, rappelling down an elevator shaft, using this giant bespoke drill, 
that involves like it is it gets so hot that there's a guy that comes through with like a fire extinguisher so that they don't like start a fire in the bank amazing it's amazing and it's it's this the scenes the things in this movie that i also truly love is that these heist scenes are mostly either silent or just with the music of tangerine dream yeah and so there's they're not talking to each other they're not they explain the job before the job and then they get in there and they do the job Exactly. And it's basically exactly what they laid out with like all of their plans, like the entire, you know, hour long part of the movie where they're kind of ironing out everything, you know, like it's it goes down exactly as planned, which is kind of like great. And there is this like moment. This is my favorite scene in the movie is when they open the vaults and Jim Belushi goes in and starts putting the diamonds in that bag. James Caan pulls a fucking chair in mm-hmm. front of the opening and just lights a cigarette and he's like yeah man we did it like it's this moment where i'm like god i wish the movie had ended like that that would have been so sweet and he's like covered in dirt and jim belushi's just shoveling diamonds into a duffel bag it's yeah. beautiful it is like that it was really that moment that made me understand like Michael Mann's influence on this genre and in this era where I'm just like, yeah, this is the money shot. This is like, here's this yeah. like song, this triumphant song playing in the background. James Conn's fucking smoking a cigarette and there's like dust everywhere and the fucking fire extinguishers going off and there's like diamonds being shoved in the bag. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. Unfortunately, the movie does not end here. <laughs> and needless to say, all hell breaks loose after this. Truly. But it, it this movie is, there's so many like movies that I've loved over the years that kind of, that take this approach of like this very like minute by minute kind of like discussing the plan of a crime th- type of thing. It's like the Friends of Eddie Coyle, the Hot Rock, like all these great films that I've loved over the years that kind of have that, um, that method to it. And I yeah. think that, that that can seem boring. That And I think maybe that's why people do think that some of these movies are kind of boring because it's like, God, we're going to sit here and watch like fucking two guys talk about, you know, jobs and, you know, briefcases and, you know, how to like take out, like get the passcode for an alarm. Like, Jesus Christ, you're burning 10 minutes on this shit, you know. I like it. I like I like the level of detail. Yeah, I don't I don't mind it. I think again for me it's only when it's super convoluted. Like I don't yeah. like it when it's like when it's convoluted in a way that when they are doing the job, you don't understand what's happening or why. Like I like that, you know, the movies where they're like, All right, let's set it up. This is fun, this is interesting, like this is exciting, and like you yeah. get to see their their passion and their skill. And I, I like that a lot. This movie in particular, I think is just really, and a lot, again, a lot of it has to do with just the vibe. I mean, it's like the color palette is like black and blue mm-hmm. and it's like real gritty, the synthiness, you know, it just creates this ambiance that I just think is so like, it, it, it just becomes the eighties. It just becomes like what we would later see. And I swear to God, like every TV show, every shitty action movie has that tone in the 80s. It's like, it just Absolutely. was proliferated forever and ever. And I, I think it's great. I was, um, again, I was like up on the Criterion Blu-ray, James Kahn's commentary. Like he does like an entire uh, interview and he says it's one of the his three most 
like the three films that he made that he's most proud of, he's so entertaining in in the Aww. in the interview. And uh yeah, a great a great flick if you love crime, if you love diamonds. <laughs> if you love if, tools. <laughs> if you if you love a story about a guy who's trying to get out of the business, if you like one last job, it's it's, it's a good great. one. Oh, it's and it's very compelling and entertaining and human and i just i really love this movie i like it a lot i've only seen it a couple times but i really really like it and uh yeah it's a for this week you know obviously like we have (laughs) invoked the name of jimmy Kahn so many times but it was nice to like be able to actually sit down and watch two of his movies i did a double feature like i I watched gambler then thief and um it's just a good reminder of like how talented he was and just he had he just had created so many uh, memorable roles and they were always these like complicated men like in both these films like you sort of want to root for them sometimes they make that shit real hard but ultimately (laughs) you know you know i think jimmy Kahn is the perfect person to play that type you know absolutely oh so much charisma so emotional like there there are a lot of things there are a lot of scenes in thief where like you're getting kind of close shots of his face and like he just has very expressive eyes and, you know, there's like a sadness to him. I don't know. He just, he really had a look and a way of conveying these characters that I just think was pretty masterful. Yeah. R.I.P. King. R.I.P. King. All right. So we do not have an episode next week. No. We do have a bonus episode, though, that's coming out Thursday, the Ooh. 22nd, so Ooh. check that out. The bonus episodes have been wild lately. I don't even know how to categorize the bonus episodes. Wild. I don't even know either. Like, <sighs> Oh, God, they're fun. They're fucking fun. Super fun. Um, you want to tell them about the movies for next episode, next main feed episode? Yeah, the next episode, which will be out on October 4th, we have two movies for you to watch for homework, which you can start now. Uh, And those films are A Raisin in the Sun from 1961 and To Sir with Love from 1967. And I know you think you're going to guess the theme, but I sincerely doubt (laughs) you're going to guess the theme. It's one of those where it's like, oh, I know it. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't know it like that. (laughs) Um. And listen, if you want to email us, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Uh, please send us questions for the bonus episodes. Like I said, they're wild. Um, but yeah, that's where we are online. And you can find us on our social media at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we also have a P.O. box that you can find on our Instagram link tree. And we've been getting lots of handwritten letters and reading some of those in the bonus episodes. Yeah, people send us gifts, which I think are super sweet. And um, we love it. We love, you know, any any little thing you send us is very thoughtful. And we just really appreciate everybody who listens and who, you know, sends us cool stuff. So, okay. Well, listen, thanks again for listening. Danielle, always a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. Always, always, always. See you guys soon. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel, artwork by Garrett Ross. 
Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.